we get emotional. In fact, if you've ever watched The Green Mile, you know that John Coffey was an innocent man who had healing in his hands. If you can see the Christian sim symbolism in that and the fact you must say it and what all that happens. But it, it's interesting to me that we can get emotional, that the tears fall and, and we get uncomfortable when we see that happening. But yet, the cross for many of us today has lost its emotional pain. It no longer makes us uncomfortable and the tears have dried up. When we turn our eyes to Calvary, the old rugged cross seems to have been sanded down to something we hang on the wall. And the spikes that were driven into our Savior's body honed and fined into pieces of jewelry. Today, we see the horror and humiliation of the cross. We must remember that Jesus faced the worst type of death known for you and me. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to join with me, please. John, the 19th chapter. And I'll try to walk through some of this. As you know, the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, have similarities. John, on the crucifixion story, is most similar to Mark. But each one have their own unique pieces. And I'll highlight some of that later in the message, but I'll also highlight some about the, the problems. I think I had Jim in my office earlier today. Even with modern translation, sometimes we become so, I don't know, wrapped around the axle on a certain word, we lose its original meaning. So, verse 17 in the NIV picks up with the latter part of 16 and says, So the soldiers took charge of Jesus. Well, that's not even in the original Greek. The soldiers does not appear. That word soldier does not appear. It's implied. In the original Greek, it says, they took charge of Jesus. Carrying his own cross, he went out to the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. NIV says Aramaic. In Greek, the word is actually a Hebrew word, same as in Aramaic is actually a dialect or a version of Hebrew, but Throughout the NIV, the more modern ones, instead of saying Hebrew, they'll say Aramaic. It is a word that means skull. You heard me allude to on Calvary. Is Jack here today? He's about the only Latin scholar I know, Jack Ranhofer. That is Latin for skull. So when we say on Calvary, we're saying just a more modern. In fact, it's interesting, as I was reading this week, Luke. Oh man, you're really going to hold my memory. I think it's Luke 23, maybe 33 that Luke uses the word Calvary. So it's interesting that in a Greek translation, they would pick up the Vulgate word of Latin and use the word Calvary. Nonetheless, he's crucified on a place, and it wasn't a hillside. No one really knows. We refer to it as such, but obviously in this text you'll see it's close to Jerusalem, and people knew about it. I'm sure a public execution place would have been known by all who lived in the city. Here, I'm at verse 18. Here they crucified him, and with him, two others. One on one side, and Jesus in the middle. 
one on the other. Pilate had a notice prepared. I think King James will say title. That is the Greek word, title. How many of you have titles? You know, you got doctor this or mister this or miss that or you write all your degrees behind your name. It's a title. In fact, many of our English names come from the title of what we did. You know, last name Carpenter. Guess what? That person probably was a carpenter historically in their family. But Pilate takes a notice or a title that he prepared or had prepared. And I doubt that Pilate was the one who actually nailed it to the cross, but has, has it fastened to the cross. And it reads, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this sign, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. I said that earlier. And the sign was written in, King James says Hebrew, NIV says Aramaic, there we have it, which is the, the language of the Jewish people. It's written in Latin, which is the language of Rome. And it's written in Greek, which is the language of all the lands across the Middle East at that time. So it's written in three different ways. And the chief priests of the Jews protested to Pilate. Do not write the king of the Jews, but that this man claimed to be king of the Jews. Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. It's kind of like, you, want me to, you wanted to stick it to me? I'm sticking it back to you. When the soldiers crucified Jesus, they took his clothes, dividing them into four shares, one for each of them. Sounds like there were four soldiers. With the unmerited garment remaining, this garment was seamless, woven in one piece from top to the bottom. Let's not tear it, they said to one another. Let's decide by lot who will get it. This happened that the scripture might be fulfilled, which said, They divided my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing. That comes from Psalm 22, which I believe begins, O oh Lord, why hast thou forsaken me? So this is what the soldiers did. Near the cross of Jesus stood his mother. I'm going to count them off. His mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. It's kind of like our church. You know, there are three cliffs in a church this size. There's a bunch of Marys in this one small group. Must have been the name to have. When Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, most likely John, He's been referred to that way before. He said to his mother, Dear woman, here is your son. And to the disciple, here is your mother. From that time on, the disciple took her into his home. Let's pray. Father, as we look at a passage that most of us know different details, and most of us at some time in our lives have become desensitized to the cross. We have lost our compassion for what Jesus went through. We have forgotten what was given for us. In this hour, as we talk about the crucifixion, may we see in this cross the torment, the pain, the death, as well as the grace and the life that comes through knowing him. Speak to us in this hour, for I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Recalling just the words that 
I guess you could say the verbs. Be careful, Cliff, because English is never your strong suit. Recalling just the way John talks about how Jesus was jerked around in the previous chapter and this chapter, I, I wrote down these this week. The soldiers brought him to Annas, the high priest. The Jews led him to Pilate. Pilate took him to be flogged. Then Pilate handed him over to be crucified. And finally, the soldiers took charge of Jesus. It's easy to read that and say, well, the blame then falls on the Jews, Pilate, and the soldiers. And they're the ones who were jerking Jesus around. But I would argue that we do it all the time. Our inconsistent mishandling of Jesus as the Savior of our soul, the Savior of this world, begins when we lose sight of the cross. Steve said today that if we just get back to the basics, and that resonated with me, knowing what I was going to preach on, don't lose sight of the cross. Because on that cross we see torture and death, and we see grace and life. So that's our first point this morning, torture and death. A couple of years ago, the Franciscan University, and I've heard this city in Ohio, but I have to look at it again, Steubenville. Sounds like a good German city. No? Anybody ever been to Steubenville, Ohio? Are you from Ohio? I've lived there. You have lived there? All right. Well, so there is a university there, a Franciscan University, and they recently, this is like two years ago, they put on Facebook opportunities to take some online courses in theology. I mean, how many of you have ever taken an online course, period? And then how many of you have taken an online course in theology? I know some of you have. Some of you might want to. Some of you say, Cliff, you should. And I'll just stop right there. But after they put these online things on Facebook, Facebook rejected them because they included the representation of the crucifixion. I quote, the monitors at Facebook said the reason for their rejection was that they found the depiction of the cross shocking, sensational, and extremely, excessively violent. Duh. <laughs> Doesn't take a university degree to figure that one out. The university, I think, heroically responded with an online post that said, well, it probably surprised Facebook, but uh, they agreed with the assessment. And here's what they wrote. Indeed, the crucifixion of Christ was all of those things. It was the most sensational action in history. Man executed his God. It was shocking, yes. God designed, it to take, God designed him to take on flesh and was obedient unto death, even death on the cross. That's an allusion to Paul in Philippians 2, when Paul's saying he came to die for you and me, even death, de describing, if you were reading it from modern day, the way he died. It wasn't like he was shot by a, you know, a, a rifle squad, or he wasn't just, he woo, got something sick and died. He was executed by the cross. And it was certainly excessively violent. A man scourged to within an inch of his life, nailed naked to a cross and left to die. All the hate of all the sin in the world poured out its wrath upon 
humanity. And they went on to say that it wasn't the nails that kept him on the cross. It was his love for you and me. Living with death in 2023 every day from our news online, the TV, the radio we listen to, the video games that children and adults play. I'm looking for my wife. Maybe she skipped out today. Oh, there. Oh, there she is. You're hiding. I know. I'm sorry. She told me as she visits, you know, she's a, a nurse who visits uh, new uh, parents, and I'm keeping this to gener generic. There are no clients' names being, I don't know the names anyway, but she said many, both the husband and the wife, neglect the child because they're online gaming. And often it's Call of Duty or something like that. I, I'm sorry, I'm a generation too late for that, but uh, we lose sight of the value of life when we turn it into a game. From our schools, where death is entered, to our communities, to the cities across our nation, it's easy to lose sight of the torture and death of the cross. The fighting and torture and death in Palestine right now has numbed our sensitivity. The only reason some people are excited about it is because it has something to do with the Holy Land. But they could be fighting in the Ukraine. They could be fighting somewhere in Africa. And we don't really give it much time. The daily shootings in our nation, and I started to list the ones that I've heard about from Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, but I thought, no. But it deadens our amazement with what people can do. Jesus allowed those who wished him to be dead to be brought, led, took, handed, and taken so he could die on a cross for you and me, for our sins. John does not mention Simon of Cyrene, a Libyan city, although he's mentioned in Matthew, Mark, and Luke as a guy who helped Jesus carry his cross. John was focused on Jesus and wanted us to know that even if Jesus didn't carry it the full way, Jesus carried his cross. John doesn't tell us about the conversations between those being crucified and Jesus. John's focus, as always in this gospel, is on Jesus. John's focus on the title explains a little bit about what he thought and how the people rejected who Jesus was. The king of the Jews. And how Pilate gave them just what they wanted. And they didn't like what they got. I can reread verse 19. Let me look at that for you again. Pilate had a notice prepared, a title prepared, and fastened it to the cross. It reads, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. I would add to it, the king of of mankind, the king of the world, the king upon all times, the king of kings. John, like the other three gospels, did say something about the bartering, the gambling, if you will, the dividing of Jesus' clothes. And if you considered for just a moment 
what a common man might have wore that time. He would have a head covering. Well, I'll just say a hat, put it in modern terms. He had an outer garment, so there's two. He had a belt that he might have hung something on, but, or some would call it a girdle. I know, ladies, I'm sorry. A girdle. I don't even know what those are. And then um, sandals. So he had four pieces, and then underneath all that, as we see, he had a seamless garment that they didn't want to cut up because, you know, it wouldn't be worth anything. So easily the four could get a piece of his clothing while they gambled away to see who would get the nice undergarment. And I think we should stop for just a second on the garments. Do you remember ever wanting to wear your mom's clothing? Not you if you're male, I'm sorry. <laughs> How many of you guys ever wanted to wear your dad's clothing? You, or, or maybe you've seen him do dress up. You know, you've seen kids that got the big shoes on, the little feet, they got the big hat on, big dress, or not, not a big dress, I'm trying to rephrase that, an adult dress and they're small. You know, you probably did that on your own. In fact, I can remember getting called out for wearing one of my dad's shirts once. And then my kids started wearing my clothing. The thing they wear most now is my socks. Spencer has a problem with not getting his socks clean, so he wears mine. Donning the clothes of Jesus could be a sermon in itself. Wonder how the soldier felt who placed his hat upon his head. Was he any smarter? Was he any more compassionate? How about the soldier who got Jesus' sandals? Remember Romans? Blessed are the feet of those who carried out the good news. You know, I mean, could he walk faster, jump higher? The one who had his belt, you know, was he now able to stand up proud? The one who took his coat? Well, let me tell you, when you lose sight of the cross and start playing dress up with Jesus, when you stop thinking that he's necessary and you start pretending that you are Jesus or big enough to wear his clothes. I mean, it's funny, don't, don't we even say, you got your church clothes on? I mean, maybe not these days. I mean, I, I would have never wore this. I would have never had blue jeans on in my hometown church that I grew up in unless maybe it was vacation Bible school. And it would be brand new blue jeans because the way our VBS started was like the week before school so I got to wear my brand new blue jeans because nobody was wearing shorts in those days to school. Yeah. Thank God for some things. Uh, <clears throat> some of you don't like that, but you would like to have me in a coat and tie every Sunday. And I, I wish some of my coats and ties fit. So, yeah. <laughs> but when you pretend that you're like him rather than being changed to be with him, when you dress up versus saying, it's not the clothes that make the man or the woman, it is the change of the heart that make the man or the woman or the follower of Christ Jesus. When you do what Jesus says, he doesn't say dress like me, he says pick up your cross and follow me. Deny yourself, follow me. Frederick Farr was a teacher, theologian, preacher, uh, English in the late 1800s, and he wrote a book called The Life of Christ uh, in 1874. He wrote another book about the life of Paul about five years later. And many people will refer to him because he says, without a doubt, 
the cross became the most painful and humiliating death anyone could face. I quote, being naked. I know on all of our pictures, if you have a crucifix or grew up in a church where a crucifix was there, typically there's a loincloth with Jesus. No. Those executed were completely naked. The public humiliation. People coming by, watching and looking, shouting their statements. He said, once nailed upon the cross or strung, some were tied. The way the, And I know you've heard sermon after sermon about this. Basically, with the outstretched arms and the way the legs were cramped up, you basically suffocated yourself. Your lungs started to fill with fluid. You could not expel uh, the carbon monoxide. Is it carbon monoxide? We breathe in, you know, we breathe in oxygen. But yeah, he, you would basically put yeah, dioxide, monoxide. I know some of you are going, hey, which one's a car? Which one's the out in the air? Doesn't matter. You were suffocating by hanging on the cross. In fact, he said the back pain, which I can relate to this morning, the hip pain. And if you've seen crosses that artists have rendered, sometimes there was a peg in the back or a peg near the feet that you could get some relief from. But all that did was prolong the death because the Romans wanted you on there for others to see for somewhere from a day to four days before you died. And if you did not die soon enough, eventually they would come and break your legs. That way you finally had no way to support yourself and you would die. In the summer of 1968, Jewish archaeologists found a cave, a burial cave, outside of Jerusalem. And there they found the first one that anyone knows of. I don't know if they found another, but this is the one most biblical commentators will reference. A man still crucified, nailed to a cross. Approximately dying somewhere around 70 A.D., so don't get this confused. It was not Jesus, and that was not my intent by bringing this up. But by their description, they talked about how he was nailed. Actually, on this man, he was nailed between, here we go, another medical. Ulna? Yeah, those, those two bones right there. He was nailed there, not in the palms of the hands. And the way his feet were, were side by side. The nail going through the right side of the ankle into the right side of the left ankle, therefore causing the person to go to their left, hanging this way. So you're in this kind of contorted position already. He said that the metal, the archaeologist that found this man said that the metal spike that was driven into the feet went into olive wood that was so hard it bent the metal spike. It was a vivid real-life illustration of the agony anyone who hung on a cross got to taste. But why all the pain and suffering? Cliff, why are you talking about all this pain and suffering? It's because through that, our sins were ransomed. Our, our salvation was purchased. It's through that that we might have forgiveness. He died in our place. Most of us uh, have heard of J.D. Greer, former president of the Southern Baptist Convention. Uh, this conference we went to the week before I went to Gatlinburg, he spoke. Uh, he was a missionary bef before he started this megachurch he has in North Carolina. 
but uh, he was, and in the Middle East, so uh, he was witnessing, he says one time to a Muslim uh, man trying to get him to understand Jesus, and this guy was, you know, he was open to talk, and obviously spoke English, and uh, he said to JD, he said, why would I ever think that God would kill a portion of himself for me? Why would God cause his own son to die for me? And JD, I love his illustration because it has something to do with cars. He said, well, if you wrecked my Ferrari, and J.D. says in parentheses, as he said, I don't really own a Ferrari, but say I owned a $2 million Ferrari, and you didn't have any insurance to pay for it, as he's telling this man, he said, I could take you to court and perhaps sue you, and maybe if everything went my way, you would end up paying for that $2 million car probably the rest of your life, and perhaps never being able to fully pay me. He said, but if I say to you, I forgive you for the damages, he said, I still have to pay myself. I have to deal with the loss. I have to deal with the sin. And that's what Jesus came to do for you and me. He paid it all on the cross. And from that cross, in his pain and suffering, he sees his mother. And there we catch a glimpse of his grace and the life we will have after this. Four women are mentioned there in verse 25. There's some question to exactly who they were. Obviously, one is Jesus' mother, Mary. There's another Mary mentioned. And the other Mary mentioned, and Mary Magdalene mentioned, the one Mary is potentially a sister-in-law of Mary, some commentators. And, and commentators, I love how they try to you know, describe exactly what they cannot describe other than to say there were four women. And perhaps there were more. These were faithful followers of Jesus. They were not afraid Show something about the faith of women, and I know it's always the women who are the first missionaries. I know all these things that, that we sometimes minimize the impact of what a woman can do when God's got a hold of her heart. But these women were standing at the base of the cross, and Jesus says to his mother, Behold thy son, and points to the beloved disciple, more than likely John. Ask yourself, have you ever witnessed your child suffering from a scraped knee to the flu to a broken bone to perhaps cancer? Anytime your child suffers, what do you do? You suffer too, right? You want to take it if at all possible. And in the midst of this, instead of Jesus saying, don't worry, he's, he is giving up the care of his precious mother to one of his friends. I'm confident that when John heard, Behold thy mother, he knew it was going to be something he would do the rest of his life. Here the Savior sees his mother suffering for his pain, and he tells John to take care of her. I wonder, where were his brothers? Of course, remember, we've preached our way through John. Remember, they're the ones who, they're, they're trying to kill you in Jerusalem. Hey, Jesus, you need to get up and go to Jerusalem. I, I don't know. And I don't want to speak badly of his brothers. Maybe they just were afraid. How many times you wished you hadn't been afraid and you would have done something, been at the right place, spoken up. But they, they were not there. And, and did John live close by? I mean, some, some biblical commentators. Obviously, if the beloved is, is John who got them into uh, Annas' and uh, the high priest's inner sanctum, he was known 
probably at a more a social level than the rest of the disciples. In fact, some have speculated that he was the PR salesman for Zebedee and son Fisher. <laughs> Fishy, you know, because we talked about maybe he was the one who did bring the high priest his fish. Nonetheless, Jesus tells him, this is your mother, and John, you must take care of her. Jesus from the cross lets his grace shine out. He knows of the life that we can have once we understand what the cross means to a believer. And without reading more into these last two verses than what John intended, I see that we have a similar commission. He tells John, the beloved, there's your, there's your mother, and, and mom, there's your son now. We have been called in this world to say, here's the world, now go and love them and take care of them. Whether you refer to it as the Great Commission or whether you look at John 21 when Peter is reinstated and Jesus says, feed my sheep. We as followers of Jesus have been brought into his confidence, his trust, and through obedience to him, we are to tell others about him about what he did, about what he overcame, about the suffering he experienced. And as I close out this message, as I'm getting, how long-winded can he be? He hasn't preached in two weeks yet. Um, sometime around the late 2000, 2007 or 2008, I, and so I had to look this one up. Because talking about wearing Jesus' clothes and you know, thinking we're pretending to be him, do you know the word plagiarism yeah my friend and I in college used to say I'm going to write a whole full page and just put a footnote at the bottom I'm not guilty of plagiarism I just repeated a whole lot of stuff I didn't do that more than once or twice but there is a guy named Timothy Gagan G-O-E-G-L-E-I-N he was G.W. Bush's political a liaison who wrote documents, um, Christian man, worked with Focus on the Family, and some online hacker, chatter, whatever you call those bloggers, started looking at some of the things that he had released, and in 2008, they found out that 27 of the 39 documents he had written had been plagiarized. So you can imagine what happened. He resigned. And after a couple of days, he says, in his own words, of struggling with why he'd done what he did, he knew he had to go to the, see the president and got in to see the president. And let me give you the full quote. He says, he knocked on his door and allowed, he was said, I, I owe you, sir, when he came in, I owe you. And President Bush simply said, Tim, you are forgiven. Speechless, he tried to, again to say, but sir. And at that, President Bush interrupted him and said, stop. I have known grace and mercy in my life, and you are forgiven. The cross is our means, this is now Cliff, this is the end of the quote. The cross is our means of shedding our past. Finding forgiveness, knowing that Christ was crucified for my failures, 
for my sins, for my wickedness, and knowing that we can have life with the Savior in eternity if we simply profess Him and accept Him as our Savior. Because the grave, as we will learn in the weeks to come, could not contain Him. Now, I know this wasn't a traditional Thanksgiving message. And I have had joyful times with children and adults saying all the things that we're thankful for. I remember a young man I was visiting in a school, I can't think what base I was at, and he had handwritten, you know, as I'm sure, Kaylin, you guys do that, things that kids are thankful for and tape them up in the wall somewhere. On this one glassed-in room I could see, he said, I thank God for my new shoes. I thought, man, how precious that we don't thank God for everything. But the foremost thing we must thank God for is for sending his son. And the fact that he died the most excruciating, most inhumane way for my sins, for your sins. Now what will you do with it and will you give him thanks? for your forgiveness, for the grace and new life you might have through Jesus. Stand with me, please, we pray. Our Father, now as we uh, move to a time of invitation, if there's one here who's never accepted Christ as their Lord and Savior, never said, I now believe, I confess that Jesus is my Savior, that my sins were some of the things that he died for on that cross, and that through faith in him, I want to join him in paradise someday and have the power to live through this life through his Holy Spirit. Lord, whatever decision there is to make, someone may just want to come to these steps and pray. Let your people have the freedom to give you thanks and respond to your grace, your mercy, and your love. For I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.